today we're talking about bereavement and loneliness. I'm Paul Can, and this is Loneliness Explored, a podcast brought to you by the Campaign to End Loneliness. Loneliness is one of many, perhaps neglected, health concerns that we face in life. And throughout life, we pass through transitions and sometimes experience loss in adult life. We may lose a job or a relationship or some aspect of our physical health. But in later life, there seem to be more transition points which cause loss. Retirement, increasing ill health and decreasing independence. But perhaps the most devastating loss at whatever point in life that more and more of us experience is loss of a loved one, a partner, often a long-term partner. I've never heard this more poignantly expressed than by Esther Ranson, who lost her husband, Desmond Wilcox, when she said about her quality of life after losing him, I've got lots of people I can do things with, but I've got nobody I can do nothing with. I'm joined by two brilliant people who can help us reflect on how bereavement and grief compound feelings of loneliness, and particularly what we can do to help. Andy Langford is Clinical Director of Cruise Bereavement Care, that wonderful organisation dedicated to bereavement. Hi, Andy. Hello there. And by Dr Lucy Selman, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Bristol, where she leads the Palliative and End-of-Life Care Research Group, probing this crucial area, which perhaps we find too difficult to look at full on. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Paul. So, turning to you both, but Andy first, can you talk a bit about the link between bereavement and emotional loneliness? Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of links that we see day in, day out at cruise. But what they often hinge upon is that actually, if we think about loneliness as the, the absence of a much needed relationship, that's really, really key for us to remember. And it's a relationship for many people that's that's been there, but then is no longer in the form that, that you would have wanted it. You know, the person who's died is no longer there in person. And so what we see then is that loneliness start to emerge by in a variety of ways where immediately there's the absence of the person and there's lots of markers for that. But then also, as you go along through time, there are additional markers that come up. Things like anniversaries, the anniversary of the death, the first birthday, first Christmas, first Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, all of those firsts that uh, are often times when people then think, oh, actually, there's an additional impact for me at this point. And so that experience on a very visceral, raw, emotional level is what we what we see as emotional loneliness. And of course, then the other aspect that we see is is often um, and we know that our the way we feel and the way we think, they're not in isolation. We are one person and we're connected to our bodies as well is we see bereavement come out and the loneliness that's um, compounded with that in a very physical way. Certainly not unusual to see people experiencing things like literally heartbreak, um, problems with the stomach, back, neck pain, all of those things. And so it can be both emotional, 
but also there can be a, a substantial physical component too. I'd love to come back to that. Lucy, you've you've had personal experience of bereavement, but you've also developed valuable work in this area. Yes. So I suppose from a personal side, my life has been shaped by grief in various ways. So my father died when I was 15. So I experienced that loss at quite a young age, which makes you feel lonely because you feel so different from your peers. You know, you're your mind is on different matters and you're trying to accommodate this huge loss at a time when you're going through a lot of developmental changes and you're you're turning into an adult. So that happened quite young and, and maybe that's one reason why I do the work that I do in terms of my research. Uh, my research has focused on palliative care and of life care for about um, 16 years now. Um, and my father died of, of cancer, so that there may be, you know, that might not be a coincidence um, but more recently, a couple of years ago, well, coming up for three years, actually, the anniversary will be in a couple of weeks, um, our second daughter, Ada, was stillborn. Um, and it was really that experience which brought home to me just how transformative a loss can be, um, how traumatic and, and kind of heartbreaking, but also the sort of the wider ramifications of, of a loss, a sudden death especially, um, but any loss, I think, on the rest of your life and on, on your relationships with other people, with your family members, with your neighbours, with your friends, um, and how lonely it can be because you do feel that no one really gets it. And it does affect your relationships with other people and it can disrupt existing networks of support. You know, we've all seen how true that is in the context of the pandemic, just how social support networks have been completely changed and, and undermined in many ways by not being able to see people um, you know in person so the research that I'm doing at the moment actually focuses on people's experiences of being bereaved specifically during the pandemic in the in the UK um, since the 16th of March last year so yeah I think it's you know the topic of this podcast is is very timely thank you I mean that's desperately sad to hear that story Andy, you you touched on the sort of physical health that's affected. Can you say something about why the health and well-being of people who've been bereaved is consistently worse than others? And why is that? And what can we do to help? Absolutely, absolutely. And and Lucy, thank you for sharing. That really does mean a lot. Thank you. Partly it's consistent because... And, and this is going to sound flippant, but I certainly don't mean it in this way, is we, we will all experience a bereavement in our lives if we haven't already. And we will all die. And as a result, leave people behind who we've made an impression upon, who love us and care for us. And so what we're talking about is a, is a universal experience, but each of those experiences are unique. Both each bereavement we have is, is a uniquely experience, but also how, how I deal with the bereavement, how Lucy does, how you do, Paul, be different, um, even if it's the same bereavement. And so what we, what we know is that we're all going to experience something like this, but also there's lots of evidence to suggest that bereavement can have a massive impact on our health, and that's our emotional health as well as our physical health. And you know what we find at Cruise is that when someone experiences the death of someone close, it's a fundamental part of them that is no longer present in the way that they would want them. Now, we talk a lot with people about how 
it's not so much when someone dies, the relationship ends. Actually, the, the relationship with the person changes, but they're no longer there with us in body. You know, it's how we go about remembering them and how we incorporate their memory and the meaning of them into our lives. But consistently, what we find is that because of that impact, then it does affect people on the emotional level. Often people find even with their thoughts being disrupted, it's very difficult to think clearly, take on significant amounts of complex information. That can be really, really hard, can be really troubling for people, um, especially at the point when you might be trying to administrate the actual uh, funeral and so forth. And then also, as I said before, from a from a physical health perspective, because someone's no longer there, it impacts on us physically and we experience that in a very, very raw way. And that then has an impact upon everything else we do too. And if you look at it, step back and actually you can understand, you can get a realization of why that might be because it's such a profound impact. So there is some truth and indeed, you know, some scientific basis when we say somebody dies of a broken heart, there's an element of truth in that. When I've experienced bereavements that are closest to me, I've experienced a physical pain that is beyond any physical pain that I've experienced before as a result of an injury or something like that. I've done quite a bit of sport in the past. I've hurt myself a few times. The experience uh, I had a physical pain as a result of my nan's death and my uncle's death. You know, the physical injuries didn't come close. Just to chip in there, Paul, I mean, I was looking at some of the literature reviews before we started today. And it does seem to be in research studies as well, this consistent pattern, finding that there is this increased risk of mortality for many different causes, including things like suicide. But also this idea of a broken heart does seem to be, you know, founded in the evidence. So psychological distress related to the loss, like loneliness and secondary consequences of the loss, like changes in social ties, living arrangements, eating habits and economic support, all of those kind of knock-on effects of a bereavement can all impact on um, someone's physical health as well as psychological health. Absolutely. I mean, Lucy, you, you've sadly experienced bereavement at different points in life. Do you think bereavement is different at different stages in life? As Andy said, I think each bereavement is, is unique. So it's difficult to say what it's like to be bereaved when you're young versus what it's like when you're older. But there is some research that suggests that being older can be a risk factor for poor bereavement outcomes and more challenges in, in your grief kind of later down the line. Many of those studies were of people who'd lost partners. But also conversely, that losing somebody when you're young can influence and, and interact with the kind of development process and, and cause issues for you perhaps later on. Certainly from my own perspective, I felt losing my dad when I was 15 that my grief was sort of on ice until I was in my early 20s and I was able to actually look at it as an adult and, and understand some of its impact. So Andy, do we need to support people in different ways at different points in life, different stages? On a very basic level, I think we could all get better at talking about bereavement more and talking about loneliness more. You know, we've, we've all got a part to play. That's at a, a base level, really, and myself included. But I think also, um, and as Lucy said, each bereavement is unique and that actually the impact is unique. And often we don't realize what that impact will be. I certainly remember, you know, conversations that, that, that I've got consent to share, which goes along the lines of, 
actually, my dad died when I was um, 11 or 12 years old. Walking down the aisle without him added to the pain as much as the joyous day of that wedding might have been. You know, equally talking with someone who, who was um, on their first day at university and, and realised that, that, uh, that actually they were going on their own. They didn't have the parents with them. You know, so the support we would need at different points is different. And also we might not know what we need until we get there. And so not only do we all need to be prepared to have better conversations about bereavement, but also it's not just about conversation. It's actually about how we listen. And uh, if we can if we can properly listen and be present for someone, what that does, what, whatever the age, is it reinforces the fact that the person that bereaved individual is talking about was important. They are important. They're important enough for you to spend your time listening about it. And that's really, really precious. And that means an immense amount to so many people. That's a kind of universal truth that you're bringing out, Andy, really, that you know, we, we all need to listen and respond and people are infinitely you know, different and unique and we need to hear where they're at, whatever stage in life they're going through. Now, you've been looking particularly at the pandemic, uh, Lucy, and the impact that that's had, which has kind of added a, a new layer of awfulness to the grieving process. How have you found that it has been particularly challenging? So we've conducted a survey of people bereaved since the 16th of March. So we've spoken to, or people have filled in um, a questionnaire for us, so seven, over 700 people. And we're in the process of analysing that whole data set, but we've already analysed the first sort of 500-odd responses. And I think what's really clear is that there's really been this unique um, and very challenging set of circumstances that people are having to deal with as well as experiencing um, a major loss in their lives. So we found, for example, that eight out of 10 bereaved respondents said they'd experienced limited contact with close relatives or friends following the death. Of course, many people have been were unable to say goodbye as they would have liked to the person who died over two-thirds said they were, had experienced social isolation and loneliness since the death. So I think any issues around loneliness in bereavement are only going to have been exacerbated uh, in the current context. And people have really been describing how heartbreaking it's been just not being able to have the hug and the close physical contact and affection that they would have had otherwise, you know, in, in normal times. Um, and I think we're only really just beginning to understand the sort of wider impact of that and how that's going to play out over the next coming years. It, it remains to be seen, really. I've heard so many people say, you know, what I would give for a hug, how I would love to hug somebody. And of course, that's what we've been denied in this awful period. So both of you, what what are we going to do differently now to learn from the experience of, of COVID? How can we handle bereavement differently? From my perspective, I think Andy's point about talking and listening is really important and sort of bringing grief out of the shadows and showing to our friends and neighbours and our family members that we are willing to listen to 
their experiences and, and share our own, even if we're not able to meet face to face. There are ways of doing that. You know, you can write a letter, you can send a text message or, you know, use social media if you do use social media. There are ways of reaching out to people. Um, and I think that's increasingly important now. Uh, absolutely. And I think the situation at the moment is really calls into question what we value, I think. You know, as just um, seeing on the news yesterday, uh, families meeting up and sharing and saying actually they wouldn't take for granted their relationships with each other. And I think what this whole pandemic does, certainly I'd count myself in this too, is is that it really strikes you about how you don't want to take for granted those close relationships and how important they are, how important they are now. And then when someone when someone dies, how they're still important and how you remember those. I think the other thing is that I've found that just in witnessing different people about how they're engaging, how they're interacting, there's a lot of compassion out there. And there's there's a lot of people reaching out to each other. And as, as Lucy rightly says, perhaps you can't meet face to face. You haven't been able to have a hug, but but you can talk, you can write a letter, you can write an email, you can engage on social media, whatever you might prefer to do. But actually, there's an awesome amount of compassion out there within people. And I've really seen that demonstrate and it's been inspiring and, and we can continue to do that. That doesn't need to be dropped. And there's an urgency about this, a need for us to find the right way, to find as many ways as we can to express our you know, empathy with people in time of bereavement. Um, Lucy, does does grief ever quite go away, do you think? I don't think so. And I think there's been a move away from thinking about getting over grief you know people don't really talk about that anymore which I think is a good thing you know we accommodate grief in our lives and we learn to live with the grief that we've experienced um, but I don't think you get over grief I think that's a one of the misperceptions that people might have um, and I think there's you know there's lots of misperceptions about what grief is you know and then when people aren't aware and they do suffer a bereavement, sometimes they can feel like, oh, I'm going mad, you know, I don't just feel sad, I feel all these other things, I feel this chaotic feelings of, you know, being out of control, or low self-esteem, or um, wanting to hide away at home, you know, it, it, it can be very much like having the rug pulled from beneath your feet. And so I think if we did have more open conversations about grief, and how it made us feel as a society, that would only be a good thing. Absolutely. I very much agree with you. And grief can hit you very hard at whatever time. I mean, my brother Nick died 30 years ago at the age of 41. Uh, but just this morning, I was listening to a piece of music, Ravel's Mother Goose Suite, which we had listened to on the, the last kind of happy and easy evening that we had together. I was totally polaxed by by that. So picking up on your encouragement, uh, Lucy, about talking about it, being open, I wonder, Andy, what do you think we can better do to support people? What's at the towards the top of your list for actions from from Cruz? Mm, thank you so much for sharing, Paul. Really appreciate that. And did you know one of the first things I think we need to, to bear in mind is, is there's no perfect way of talking about grief. There's no perfect way of talking about our own losses and there's no perfect way of talking to someone else about theirs. 
And I think what we can immediately start to do is think, how can we remove that pressure from ourselves of having to have that absolutely perfect conversation, which will make someone better? Because it won't. What you can do is we can genuinely be present for someone. And what that means is it, it does mean listening more to someone. Yes, their voice, but also um, what they're doing and, and, and what, their, what their body's demonstrating. You know, do they seem low? Do they seem active? And communicating to someone that you are there for them as and when they need you. And, and that presence is really, really important. I certainly find it helpful. I found it helpful in the past to say something like, I'm not sure what to say, or my words can't sum it up, but I, I just want to be here for you. And is there a way we can organise or do more, have more services, more responses in the community that will help people support in that way, do you think, Andy? Well, there's lots of organisations working with bereavement. And, um, you know, as Lucy's demonstrated, there's lots of research going into how we can do that best which is really important because it continues to evolve. You know, crews included, as I say, lots of other organizations too. But on a very sort of baseline level, we can all bear in mind that we can, we can provide support to people where they're at. You know, if we know that everyone's going to experience a bereavement in their lifetime, if they haven't already, then we can be ready and we can be ready to have that conversation and ready to, to demonstrate our acceptance. And also, I think, to look out for people. And that's something that's been inspiring about seeing folk within this the context of the pandemic is i think people have looked out for pe- for other people all the more whether that's people who are lonely on the other side of their doors or whether it's people who've experienced a bereavement and you think actually i just want to go and demonstrate my compassion for someone so i think that presence and that readiness is so important sure and lucy you you share that very much i think Yes, I do. And last year in October, um, I work at the University of Bristol and a group of us in collaboration with Cruz and with um, Marie Curie and, and other collaborators, we put on for the first time a festival called Good Grief. Um, and that ran at the end of October. And we also just ran a second festival the last weekend in March. And the aim of Good Grief Festival is really to provide opportunities for people to learn, um, think and reflect and, and share their experiences of grief. Um, I, you know, I feel really passionately that in the UK, our social attitudes to, to grief and bereavement could be better. And that was one reason for founding the festival in the first place. So in 2019, the, the charity Sue Ryder conducted a national survey and they found that half the people they spoke to were scared of saying the wrong thing to a bereaved person. One in two didn't know what support to offer if someone they knew had, had been bereaved. And one in four said they would actually avoid talking to somebody about their bereavement. And obviously, all of those attitudes and behaviours can make it much more isolating and lonely for somebody who has been bereaved. And so the idea of Good Grief Festival was really to try and contribute towards opening up our conversation around grief and bereavement. There is a lot of research out there. There's a lot of scholarship and art. You know, there's poetry, there's films, there's all sorts of ways in which human beings have, have tried to engage with the subject of grief. Um, and so there's lots of different ways in and it doesn't necessarily have to be about being very open about your own personal experiences um, not everybody will want to to share um, everything they've been through, but it might just be that listening to someone else share can strike a chord with you and make you feel part of that um, human family. Um, because as Andy said, you know, this is something we are all going to experience. 
You mentioned the Good Grief Festival, I think. Is that right? How yeah. could we catch up on that? So we've um, made all of the content from both the festivals available um, online. So if you go to grief-channel.com, you can access the Grief Channel and you can search by different types of grief and bereavement and watch um, all of the content. It's £20 to sign up and that gets you access for a whole year. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to joining that, I must say. It looks like you've got some inspiring people who are contributing to that. Do you um, think we need more public funding into bereavement support? And if you had it, what would you do with it? Um, Andy, I'm sure that Cruise has some support, but like the hospices, perhaps, you know, we are leaning on the community to step up with the financial support very often. Do we need more public money, do you think, Andy? It's more public money that's sustainable. So over the course of the the last three or four decades, we've we've not seen any considerable investment in bereavement support that lies beyond palliative care. And within palliative care, there, we know there aren't enough resources there either. And so with the investments needed throughout, you know, bereavement's often not looked upon and we turn away from it, but actually it's important to turn to it with resources. We know in the UK that many, many people will experience a bereavement year in, year out. And so we know that there's a need. A proportion of those people, we estimate uh, one in five or one in six, will then experience additional difficulties as a result of the bereavement. And so we know in our communities, there's more people that need more support and the, the communities themselves are struggling to meet that need. And Lucy, what more do we need to know, do you think, about bereavement? Um, where do we want to put money into research to understand it better, do you think? I think there's a need for research funding to understand the best ways of supporting people of different um, population groups. So, for example, the best support for older people, the best support for um, younger people. At the moment, research on actual effectiveness is quite limited. Um, we know that bereavement support is helpful, but with more investment in, on the research side, we could generate a stronger evidence base to know that we're using the funds, the limited funds that are available in the best possible way. Um, in the context of the pandemic, for example, it's really key that we understand remote bereavement support, sort of what works well and what doesn't work so well, and so we can optimise what's currently provided. Um, and I would second Andy's call for more investment in services, in the UK, we're lucky to have a really quite an extensive network of bereavement charities. But what we find in the research is that there are still barriers to access. So some people, especially people from minority ethnic communities and also younger people, feel less comfortable accessing support. And we don't want services only to be available for white middle classes. It needs to be something which is accessible to everyone and available to everyone. And at the moment, it can be a bit of a postcode lottery in terms of some services being more focused in certain areas and some bereavement services having long waiting lists. So it's really about trying to open up the different types of support that's available and make sure they're available to the people who need them most. And if I may just, just follow that, if I might, there's lots of evidence to indicate that bereavement support, formal bereavement support, but also having a good conversation about bereavement can prevent further health problems down the line. And and even if we look at something like suicide as an example, now Suicide Bereavement UK 
done some fantastic research on looking at the the impact of suicide on people who themselves have experienced have experienced the bereavement through suicide and whether that's in their personal lives and their professional lives what we can see from that is that when someone experiences a bereavement through suicide then you're more likely to experience suicidal thinking and feelings associated with that yourself that's not to say that you will definitely put that into action but that you're statistically more likely to experience those and so what that means is that also if we can help and intervene sooner then people's thoughts and feelings around suicide are a lot less likely to escalate to the point of action so we can literally by intervening sooner we can save lives and that's not just with suicide that's with that's with other types of bereavement too thank you so more research is is clearly and definitely needed and more services are urgently needed. At the Campaign to End Loneliness, one of our fundamental messages has been to find ways of reaching out more to one another, to, to kind of break out of the inhibitions that stop us showing each other that we are human. And we have used a slogan and done a lot of work around the message, Be More Us, at the campaign to convey that message and reaching out to people who are bereaved and likely to be isolated. It's certainly the message our experts have sent out today. So I want to say a warm thank you very much to both Andy and Lucy. Next week, we'll be looking at this very issue of, of how we reach out and that most important thing that makes the world go round, conversation. And if you want to get in touch meanwhile, please come to www.campaigntoendloneliness.org and follow us on Twitter at EndLonelinessUK. Thank you very much, everybody.